Amen. Acts chapter 4, starting verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to uh, pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he is been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which the builders, uh, or which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. None of there, nor is there salvation, I'm sorry, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing right, uh, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred amongst themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak <clears throat> the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Well, as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through the entire Bible, yeah, we're making our way through the entire Bible, slowly but surely. But uh, this morning we come to Acts chapter 4, and you'll remember just prior to the events that we're going to be looking at today, Peter and John saw this lame man who was sitting by the beautiful gate. He's begging for alms. Peter fixes his eyes on him and uh, says to him, and you can glance back, Acts chapter 3. You can read it with me, uh, starting verse 6. Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but I, what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. 
So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, <clears throat> walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. This lame man uh, looks at Peter and John. He's expecting to, see, to receive something from them. But you know what? God had so much more for him than what he could have even begun to imagine. God had so much. And, and you know what? Before we go on with our study, we want to understand that's true for each of us this, here that are here this morning. It's true for every one of God's people. God has so much more for you than what you could possibly begin to imagine. In fact, the Bible says the eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's, that's the caveat. If you love God, God has something for you that is greater than what you can imagine. And if, and if you get nothing else out of this Bible study this morning, you know what? I pray that you would receive this one truth and you would let it sink deep into your heart. God has so much more for you than what you could even begin to hope for. And in verse 12, we see Peter, he begins to preach. This is Acts chapter 3, verse 12. He begins to preach Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then he confronts uh, the leaders with their sin. Acts 3, uh, verse 13, it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, who was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And then Peter follows that up with an offer of forgiveness from God. Verse 19 says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And, and again, you might recall in our previous studies, we made mention of the importance of not just sharing Christ with somebody, sharing Christ with an individual, and then walking away. It's not enough just to shine a light on the problem. It's not enough to shine uh, a light on the sin nature of mankind. You know, everyone's a sinner. Everybody, everywhere, they all fall short of the glory of God. It's not enough just to to explain this great gulf that separates man and God because of our sin, right? When we share the love of Christ with people, we need to offer them an opportunity to repent. We need to give them a chance to repent of their sins. We need to ask them. <laughs> we need to ask them if they'd like to pray and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And, and I've shared this story with you in the past. My friend and I, my friend Greg and I, we had a street witnessing ministry, uh, you know, for just about three years. Greg and I, every weekend, we would be out on the streets, you know, meeting people, sharing Jesus with people, sharing God's plan of salvation. And it was probably after, you know, the first year uh, we were doing this that I said to Greg, you know what? And I was a little discouraged. I said, man, I don't get it. You know, I'm telling people about Jesus and and, uh, you know, people aren't willing 
to pray and ask Jesus to come into their life to be their Savior. You know, when I share with them, they just, nobody prays. Why do you think that is? And Greg says to me, are you asking them if they want to pray and receive Jesus Christ? Uh, well, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, believe it or not, you know, I shared with a lot of passion. I shared with a lot of love, you know, and I poured out my heart. I was pleading with people uh, to repent of their sins and to receive Christ as their Savior, but nobody responded because, you know what? I didn't give them an opportunity. I mean, you'd think it would be a no-brainer, and it probably is. It just wasn't the, it was, it was a brainer for me. I, I didn't know. No one asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins as I shared Christ with them. But then Greg reminded me I need to ask people. And you know, as, as I began to ask people to pray to receive Jesus Christ, would you like to receive Christ? You know what happened? People said, yeah, actually, I would like to pray. And, and it was surprising to me. I was like, let's pray. You know, as soon as I began to ask people if they wanted to pray uh, for the forgiveness of the sins, if they wanted to pray and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, as soon as I started asking people, they said, yes, would you pray for me? And I got to pray with so many people. And it was just wonderful to pray with somebody. It's just the most beautiful thing to pray with somebody to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. It was a real turning point for me. You know, we need to share Christ with people and we can't be afraid to talk about uh, sin, to lovingly point out uh, to people how everyone is a sinner and is in need of a savior. But then we need to also remember to offer them a chance to be forgiven, to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we move on now, uh, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to start chapter 4 now. But if you're taking notes, you might want to note this. Acts chapter 4 is the first real, well, at least the first recorded opposition to the early church by Judaism or the old religious system. It starts here in Acts chapter 4. It says, verse 1, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. While Peter is preaching to this large crowd that is gathered all around him, he's interrupted by the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, during Jesus' public ministry here on earth, his main opposition, the opposition that he faced, primarily came from the Pharisees. They were the legalistic, um, ultra-radical fundamentalists of the day. But the primary opposition uh, to the early church came from the group called the Sadducees. They were the liberal materialists uh, of the Jewish ruling bar, uh, body. They rejected the majority of the Old Testament. They only received the first five books of Moses, right? The law. That was all they received of the word uh, that they viewed as authoritative. They rejected uh, the oral traditions and the interpretations of the law. Uh, they didn't believe in angels or spirits. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the uh, immortality of the soul. And they completely rejected everything. You know, just the idea of the the resurrection of the dead was foolishness to them. 
Then it says verse 2, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So Peter's preaching that the lame man was made whole in the name of the risen Savior, in the name of the resurrected Jesus. And the Sadducees weren't just disturbed by it. It says they were greatly disturbed by it. I just find these things funny. Because, you know, the Greek word there translated greatly disturbed, it, it carries with it the idea that they were troubled by it. They were very displeased with it. They were offended by it. They were even pained by it. It caused them pain by the fact that Peter was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They're so greatly troubled and disturbed by it. Verse 3 says they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. Now, there's an important fact that's hidden here in this verse. And it's very easy to miss if you're not paying attention to it. It says that the religious leaders laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day. Why did they put them in custody until the next day? Well, the answer is right there because it was already evening. Well, okay, Gary. I mean, you're kind of losing me here. So what? They put them in custody because it was already evening since it was illegal uh, to hold a trial any time other than daylight hours, right? Um, now, you'll recall that Jesus was arrested during the night. He was bound. He was led away to Annas uh, first. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time. Um, by the way, that was inappropriate also. That was not right at all because the priesthood was to be passed down to a son, not to the son-in-law. The son would become the high priest after his father died. But after being questioned by Annas, they led Jesus away to Caiaphas, uh, to his house, to be tried which was also illegal because trials were not to be held in any other place other than the official uh, meeting place, the official chambers of the Sanhedrin. They tried Jesus through the night and pronounced him guilty, which was also illegal. The law said that the entire body of the Sanhedrin had to be present um, and they were to take a vote, right? And the vote would go from starting with the youngest member of the Sanhedrin going to the oldest, so the oldest members wouldn't influence the youngest members. And the verdict was that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, and then they pronounced uh, the sentence, the death penalty upon him that same evening, which also was illegal. Uh, in a case where the death penalty was a possibility, the members of the Sanhedrin were to sleep on the facts for a night, right before they pronounced the accused guilty. It was something kind of like a cooling off period. It gave the Lord a chance to move upon their heart to extend mercy in the case. So they, they put these guys in prison. They put Peter and John in custody and they're going to just hold them overnight until the next morning so they can do what's right in their eyes. It says verse 4, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is a verse that we should uh, allow to just go deep in our heart, to take root and bear fruit. It says, those who heard the word 
believe. Sharing the word of God is powerful, right? It's the word of God that has the power to change a life. People often ask me, hey, what do you think I should do in this situation or in that situation? And I try to avoid telling people what I would do or what I think they should do because who cares what I think, really? Who cares what I think? What does the word have to say? Romans 1, 16 Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for everyone, uh, power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2.4, saying, and my speech and my uh, preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. I mean, there's very little power in human wisdom, if any at all. But the word of God is powerful, very powerful. Hebrews 4, 12, regarding the word of God, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than uh, any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. And it's the word of God that reveals the secrets of people's heart. And it's the word of God that reveals to us our need for a savior. So when God opens a door for us, we want to answer uh, with, we want to answer that opportunity with the word of God. Verse 5, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were in the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And keep in mind, this is the very same group that put Jesus to death just about six or eight weeks earlier. Verse 7, and when they had set them, the apostles, Peter and John, in their midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? This is actually a legitimate question. Because in Deuteronomy 13, it says, if anyone does a work, if anyone does a miracle, if anyone prophesies in any other name other than Jehovah, they're to be put to death. But I wonder if they asked this question in such a way that, it, you know, they ask it in a, with an intent to intimidate Peter and John. Who gave you to nobodies the authority? You know, we're the chief priests of Israel, and we didn't give you the authority. So uh, who do you unlearned fishermen think you are? And, and maybe they thought you know, to overwhelm Peter and John uh, with their position, you know, with their decrees, degrees, their diplomas hanging up on the wall. You know, Peter and John had none of that. They, they, they were uneducated. They were untrained. But they had something that the religious leaders didn't have. They had the Holy Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit that had baptized them into Christ, and now he's anointing them for service. And in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people 
and elders of Israel. Uh, again, hey, it's only been about two months previously that Peter stood by a fire and he denied Jesus three times. And now Peter, after being touched by fire, right, on the day of Pentecost, he's a different man. And in this situation, we find him actually in the fire facing the very men who gave Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. And, and this is true. If you've been touched by the Holy Spirit, if you've been led by the Holy Spirit, if you've been led to take a stand for God, take a stand for Jesus Christ, refusing to back down, you know what? Take it from me. You're going to find yourself in the fire at times. It's just the truth of the matter. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel, and we'll see this played out in Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 3 is where we want to go. And the story is very familiar to you. You know, uh, we're going to see this played out, this willingness to take a stand in the opposition that comes from that stand. We're going to see it played out in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life. Uh, Daniel 3, starting at verse 8. You can just follow with me as I read. Therefore, at that, certain, uh, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your guards or worship the golden image as you have set up, uh, which you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I've made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebi, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if God chooses not to do that, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve you gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, full of rage, had an expression on his uh, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that the heat of the, uh, they heat the furnace seven times more than it's usually heated. And he commanded certain men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, when the king's command, uh, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, ministrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god other than their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any person, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Jesus met the boys in the midst of the fire. You know what? He delivered them from the fire, and there was no ill effect upon them as a result of the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were ready to die. They, they were ready to give their life. They knew that God could save them. He was able to save them. Save them. And they, they knew that God was worthy of their complete and total unwavering trust. They believed even if God chose not to act on their behalf, even if God chose not to deliver them, you know what? they're going to surrender their lives to him. They trusted in him. They're going to trust in him because he's worthy of our trust. And the application is this. We can find ourselves in hot water from time to time. And we can feel like we're on the anvil and the hammer's coming down. We can find ourselves in the fire in difficult situations, in heated and and, uh, hurtful battles. You know, and when you're in, when, you, when you're on in the fire, back up, when you're on fire for the Lord, you're going to find yourselves in, in the fire at times. You place your trust completely in the Lord. You rest in the knowledge that God is more than able and you have faith in God and, and you don't, you refuse to waver in your resolve. Yeah, hold tight to the Lord because he's worthy of our determined surrender, even in the hardest of times. He's worthy of our unwavering faith in him. 
right? Even when we find ourselves in situations where, that leave us asking, why, Lord? Why? I don't get it. And you may be facing a circumstance today that's, that's uh, you know, not of your making. You know, and it seems like there's no light whatsoever, even at the end of the tunnel. You know, the, the Lord would have us trust in Him, right? He has your best interest at heart. It's what you need to remember. Whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, God is looking out for each one of us. And you know what? When I think about these things, when I'm in the trial, I'm in the fire, and I think about these things, I just ask myself, and, I ask, and I'll ask you this question. Is it too hard to fully trust in the one who loved you so much that he laid down his life in order that you might be saved? I mean, is it too big of an ask to trust in the one with nail-pierced hands? You know, that's really what it comes down to. In verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, wait a minute, pump the brakes gear. I thought Peter was already filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, wasn't he filled with the Holy Spirit back in, in the day of Pentecost? Yeah, Acts 2, 4 clearly says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Well, what's going on? Peter said in Ephesians 5, 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or emptiness, uh, but be filled with the Spirit. And the literal Greek translation for be filled with the Spirit is be being filled with the Spirit. It's a continuous feeling, uh, filling. You know, the problem is I'm a leaky vessel. You know what? So are you. We need a continual filling. We need a constant supply. We need a fresh infilling on a daily basis. And you know what? Thank God for Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus speaking. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So do you think Jesus actually told the truth in regards to the availability of the spirit to each one of us? Or was he lying? Well, I'm not very smart, but this is the way I see things. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Since lying is a sin, and Jesus is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, you know, when he said the Holy Spirit is available to all who ask, I think that's what he's meant. I think that's what he meant, right? And Jesus also said, uh, John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit there. So let me ask you, are you experiencing this? Are you experiencing rivers of living water? You know, Jesus said, all we have to do is ask. You know, Gar, I've asked before. I've asked so many times. Nothing ever seems to happen. Well, if we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, since Jesus uh, uh, said it again, it must be true. He's sure to fill us with the Holy Spirit when we ask him. But we receive the Holy Spirit by faith in the same way we receive Christ as our Savior. We ask him to come into our life and we receive him as our Savior by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without faith, it's impossible 
to receive the Holy Spirit. But we need to remember, when we receive Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart. He takes up residence within our life. He's there. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you right now. And as we give ourselves to the Lord, reading the Word, believing the things that we read, witnessing and sharing our faith, being engaged in fellowship within the body, praying, serving within the church, serving other people, living a life in obedience to the Lord, then the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us. The fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, and uh, self-control. These things happen naturally. They come into our lives naturally as we give ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to the Lord, right? But there is a coming upon of the Holy Spirit that empowers us for the work of the ministry. Uh, people often call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's not, it doesn't come upon us. He doesn't come upon us so we can feel good about ourselves. It's not so we can just have the warm fuzzies. It's for the work of the ministry, Right? And the fresh filling, that anointing needs to take place each time God gives us opportunities to share Christ or for some other specific purpose uh, to which God has called us to. We're leaky vessels and, and ministry needs to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit if it's to have any eternal value. So we're in need of a fresh filling when confronted with new opportunities. Boy, I tell you what, I'm praying daily every time I get in front of you on a Sunday. God would fill me with the Holy Spirit. Uh, every time I have an opportunity to share my faith, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the words. And that's what we need to do. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Now look at the boldness of Peter after being filled with the Holy Spirit. The number one sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is not speaking in tongues like so many people mistakenly believe. The number one sign is boldness. Right? It's being bold and taking a stand for Jesus Christ. And you might be tempted to say, you know, Gary, I don't know if I could ever be that bold. Okay. Hey, praise the Lord. If that's the case, guess what? The Bible has good news for you. Matthew 10, verse 40 through 42, it says, He who receives you receives me, Jesus speaking. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. I mean, we can do so much, so much in, in scope, but also so much in opportunity. We have so many opportunities to do things in the name of Jesus, big or little, right? In our eyes, that doesn't matter one bit. 
What's important is we're doing it in his name. We're doing it for his glory. Verse 11 says, This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 here, and the Jews clearly understood that Psalm 118 was a messianic uh, psalm. It's referring to the Messiah. And I'm sure you're all aware of this legend regarding the stone which was rejected by the builders. The story goes, when they were building Solomon's temple, you know, uh, all the stones, they were being quarried below uh, the temple mount. And uh, all the stones were basically, you know, they're all the same size, same shape. But one day a stone was sent up and it was completely different from all the rest. And the builders are, are thinking, man, there's no place for the stone. It's got to be a mistake. So they cast it off over the edge of the cliff, tumbles down into the Kidron Valley below the Temple Mount, Solomon's Temple. It took seven years to build. But as the years went on, finally they got to that place where they they needed the cornerstone, so they sent down the order to the quarry to have him send it up. And the guys in the quarry uh, told him, like, what are you talking about? You know, we already sent it up to you. We sent it up a long time ago. All right? So they searched and searched for it. They failed to find it. And then there were one of the older workers. He's like, you know what? I remember. Okay? There was uh, one stone. It was sent up a long time ago. And it didn't seem to fit any place. It was different from all the rest of them. We thought it was a mistake, so we threw it over the edge of the cliff. So, uh, you know, it's down there in the valley below. So they searched for that stone. Down in the Kidrod Valley, they found the stone that was rejected by the builders. They hoisted it up to the Temple Mount, and they put it into place. It fit perfectly, right? And the stone the builders had rejected became the chief cornerstone. Every Jew at this time in Acts chapter 4 knew the legend and knew what Peter meant when he said, this is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which become the chief cornerstone. Jesus was God's anointed and you rejected him, is what he's saying. You crucified him. You cast him out and threw him down into the grave. But God has raised him up from the dead. And in the resurrection, God has made him the chief cornerstone of a new temple that he's building. And this temple that Jesus is building, the one that he's the chief cornerstone of, is the church. It's us, right? Peter says, 1 Peter uh, 2, verses 4 and 5, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, all of us, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're living stones. Yeah, but you know what? I don't like this blockhead in my life. Well, you know what? God puts different people in our lives to chip away at the rough edges, preparing us for heaven. Verse 11 says, this is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which had become the chief cornerstone. Stone nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, with just this incredible boldness, Peter drives home to them that it's Christ or nothing. It's Jesus or judgment. It's him or hell. The choice is yours. But Peter also lovingly invites the Jewish leaders to be saved saying that there's no other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. Peter 
I, I think actually, if we could hear his tone of voice, I think he's lovingly pleading with them. You know, the guys, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, it reminds me, every time I read that verse, it reminds me of the three musts of John chapter 3. Jesus said, you must be born again. That's the must of the unbeliever. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That's the must of the Savior. And John the Baptist said regarding Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. You know what? That's the must of us as believers. Is Jesus increasing in your life? Are you taking steps to daily grow closer to the Lord? Right? Yielding more and more to his sovereign will for your life. That's the only place where true meaning for life is actually found. It's found in a deep, loving, devoted relationship to Jesus Christ where he's increasing and we're decreasing through greater and greater submission to him. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. The religious, the, the religious leaders, they, they tried to intimidate, I think, Peter and John, but they weren't, they weren't being intimidated, right? They exercised great boldness and they told these religious leaders that they needed Jesus if they wanted to be saved. And the religious leaders, you know, they marveled at that. People didn't speak to them like that. Certainly not fishermen from Galilee. It was like Jed Clampett boldly dropping unvarnished truth and wisdom on Mr. Drysdale, if you can imagine. We talked about old references that dated us earlier before the service. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Jed Clampett. Peter and John, man, they were hillbillies in the eyes of the sophisticated religious leaders of Jerusalem, right? And the leaders marveled at them. And then it hit them. Oh, now it makes sense. These guys have been hanging out with Jesus. Have you ever noticed how sometimes people, they can pick up the mannerisms of people that they spend a lot of time with? And I got to tell you, that's my heart's desire. You know what? I want to spend so much time with Jesus that I pick up his mannerisms. You know, I don't care if people think I'm uneducated or untrained because the truth is, it's not, that's not far from the truth, right? You know, I don't know what I'm doing most, if not all of the time. You know, I've never been taught how to handle this situation or that situation. You know, this is actually the first time I've ever been down this road, you know? And because of that, I'm on my face before the Lord, crying out for help, crying out for wisdom. You know, I want people to see Jesus in me. And I want to bring glory to my Savior. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They, they couldn't deny that, that this lame man was healed. They couldn't deny that it was anything other than a miracle. How could this possibly be explained away? Right? Verse 15. But when they uh, commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred amongst themselves. I find this quite amusing, right? Because the enemies of the Lord attempt to take counsel uh, together in secret 
as if the Lord doesn't see what goes on behind the closed doors. Like he's got a, a glass up against the door to his ear. Like, shh, guys. Yeah. You know, no one pulls the wool over the Lord's eyes. He sees everything. He knows everything. You know, there's nothing hidden from him. Verse 16, they say, what shall we do? Uh, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle had been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. It, from now on, they speak no more in this name. That's the strategy of Satan, right? He's actually powerless to do anything, but he'll try to scare you. He'll try to make you afraid in the hopes that you'll be willing to quit. He'll say things like, if you tell people about Jesus, you know, they're going to think you're some kind of a kook. He'll make threats saying things like, if you give your life to Jesus, you're just going to get end up losing everything, right? And then what will you have? He'll lie to you saying, if you give your life to Jesus, you'll never achieve your dreams. He'll twist the truth saying, look around. Look at all the fun the other people are having. You know what? They, they have everything they want and more. And also they have none of the problems that you're facing. He'll try to intimidate you saying, if you give your life to Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly, then he's going to send one trial after another into your life. That's just the way it is. Is that the way you want it? And one of Satan's most effective lies and intimidations, you've all heard it probably more than any other lie. If you give your life to Jesus, he's going to send you to Africa as a missionary. You think life's hard now. Just wait and see. You know, the enemy is going to say anything. He'll try to do anything. Uh, you know, he'll try everything within his power to dissuade you, to keep you from giving your life to Jesus in full measure. But everything he says, he's a lie. If he's speaking, he's lying because he's the father of lies. And every threat that he throws at us is empty. He's totally helpless to go any further than what God allows him to do. And your loving Heavenly Father will not allow anything into your life that isn't approved by him, that isn't for your good, and isn't for his glory. He's not going to allow it. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Listen as I read Romans 8, 28, 39 to you. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. Right? Let me read it again. And we know, we know this. We know this is true. That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing has a chance. Nothing remotely has a chance. God will keep us and will prosper us as we fix our eyes on Jesus in order to live radically for him. They ordered Peter and John saying, from now on, you're not to speak uh, to anyone in this man's name, verse 18. So the chief, so they called them and, can, and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. We do the devil a great service when we fail to speak to other people in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter and John, they had an answer for this decree. Verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. You know what? Nothing can be more ridiculous than to listen to the enemies of Christ when God has called us to live in obedience to him and carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I pray, yeah, I pray that we are incapable of not speaking. That's a double negative, so that's that we would be speaking. All that we've seen, we've seen a lot. All that we've heard, we've heard a lot. All that we've experienced in Jesus, we've experienced a lot in Jesus. It's too important to other people to keep silent, to those people who are perishing, not to speak of salvation and the forgiveness of sin that's found only in Christ Jesus. Verse 21, so when they had Further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man who was 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing uh, had been performed. The unspoken, untold backstory of Acts chapter 3 and 4 regarding the healing of the lame man is that for many, many years, this guy was carried to the temple Right? He was set down at the beautiful gate in order to beg for alms. Right? And I can guarantee you that Jesus Christ had walked by him a number of times. And not only has Jesus walked by him a number of times, but Peter and John have walked by him another time. And all the other apostles have walked by this guy because he's been in that condition for 40 years. Who knows how long they've been laying him there. Right? I wonder... How many times this lame man prayed asking God to touch him? How many times he prayed that the Lord would heal him? You know, I'll bet you that he prayed so many times that it, it just began to look like God wasn't even listening now. You know, that God didn't care. And that state of discouragement can easily fall upon each one of us. God, 
Why aren't you working? You know, I've prayed. I've fasted. I've believed. I'm trying to live my life for you. I'm trying to live a surrendered life to you. But it seems like you either don't care or you're just not listening. Maybe in truth, you're not as loving as you say you are. Uh, Or maybe you're just not able to help. You're not as powerful as you think you are. Where are you in this situation, Lord? You know, and my encouragement to everyone would be this. Make no mistake about it. God is working. He's working things together for the good of everyone involved. In this situation, he was working to bring Peter and John to that place where they could exercise great faith, reaching down and grabbing a lame man and saying, stand up and walk. He was working you know, to bring the right people uh, in the crowd together so that they could witness what God was doing. The right people on both sides of the equation. The, the religious leaders that condemned Jesus just a few weeks earlier, but also the crowd that's going to place their faith, the 2,000 men that are going to place their faith in Jesus Christ when Peter preaches. He's working in the heart of the lame man. He's bringing the lame man to the place where he could receive after 40 years of being lame. Peter grabbing his hand saying, stand up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? Do you have any idea how many times this guy has tried to walk in the last 40 years? Right? And then just to fall flat on his face? God was working to bring all these things and a million other things all in line, all in order to do what he was going to do for this man, to do it in a way that brought the most amount of people to a point where they could exercise saving faith, as well as doing it in a way that he would receive maximum glory. That's the way our Lord works. God is working in your situation, and he's working in mine, whether we know it or not. And at just the right time, the Lord is going to do just the most miraculous thing, right? At just the right time, he's going to do the most miraculous thing. And the longer we walk with the Lord and surrender to him, the more we experience this, the more we know it, the more we're assured of it. And it's all for his glory. You, you mark my words, you'll see. And if you just wait on him and don't give up, you'll see. I personally love... Um, what Jesus said to Martha when he waited four days to come to Lazarus. And because he waited four days, Lazarus died. And Mary and Martha, they both said to the Lord exactly the same words. They said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, Lord, where were you when we needed you? If you would have come when we called you, if you would have done what you need to do when we told you we need it, You know, you could have spared us all this hardship. But what did Jesus say to Martha? Do you remember, man? It's one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, John 11, 40. He says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? That is just as true for each one of us with whatever situation we're facing or we're going to face as it was for Mary and Martha. Jesus did something that no one ever could have imagined Lazarus in the the grave. He calls him forth. 
Who would have ever guessed it, right? And he did it just at the right time to affect the most amount of people and to receive the greatest amount of glory. We have, to, we have it completely backwards. We say seeing is believing. But the truth is believing is seeing, right? Believing is seeing in his perfect timing. If you're wondering where the Lord is in your situation, my encouragement is take heart today. Right? Hold on. Don't give up. The Lord is at work. And you will yet praise him for what he's going to do. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you so much. That's so encouraging to me, Lord. I thank you for the time that I've had to study this and to think it through and to go over it and to refresh my memory in regards to these things. I pray, Lord, your spirit would refresh the memories of my brothers and sisters here this morning. And Lord, you would just encourage us. Lord, as we face the holiday seasons, this is a stressful time for many people. Lord, help us to remember to look to you, to trust in you. You're at work and you're doing greater things than we ever imagined. Lord, you want to do greater things than we could ever hope for. We love you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise and glory in your name. Amen.